church, we're going to hopefully finish it. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Let's go ahead and read through this passage. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. We've covered uh, most of this section. Um, just a very light review. My goal is to finish this church today. And then whenever I, God grants me the privilege to teach, we'll start in the next church. But we have seen... In the first three verses, as well as in verse 6, that Jesus commended uh, these Christians in Ephesus. They hated evil. They hated false doctrine. They hated those who taught um, this evil. Okay? They, didn't, uh, they hated compromise. That's what the Nicolaitan, uh, Nicolaitans were about. So he commends them, and we've, we spent the three weeks talking about how God has commended them, how Christ has commended them, and, and was uh, truly honored by them. But now they have come, there's, there's one area in their lives where they've come short, and it's a vital area. They lost their first love for Christ, and we started that last week there in verse 4. He says, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. And so what we see here in verse 4 is that true, genuine love, not the love that the world talks about, but true, genuine love for Christ is foremost, and it overflows to others. Without a love for Christ, we will not truly, genuinely love others. We see that in Scripture. That's why Jesus said, remember when he was asked the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second one is like it. Love your brothers you love yourself. Or, well, love them in the same way in a sense. The point being, the reason why it's one and two this way is because without love for Christ, without love for God, we will not love others the way we need to love. Okay? So when they leave their first love here, we have to understand that concept. And as I mentioned last week, this formula, I have this against you, it describes the spiritual moral problems of the church. And he uses this in the other churches as well, in the other letters. I have this against you. That means there's an issue here. There's a problem that he's going to bring out. And the problem with the Ephesian church is that they have forsaken that first love. And remember last week we talked about what does that love refer to? And there's uh, some say that this is, well, a love for Christ. And others say, well, it can't be because of what they did in, in uh, verses 2 and 3. Others say it's a love for the brethren, which I think can be true. But I do believe that in this case it's both and. It's they have lost this love for Christ, which also overflowed in their lack of love for their brothers and sisters and love for the community in which they did not reach out. That's why he, tell, he uh, uh, looks at himself as being uh, walking among the lampstands. And he said, if, uh, if you don't repent, I'm going to pluck your lampstand. Okay? 
So I believe that the first love here is a love for Jesus, which overflows to a love for others. They lacked that. They, they uh, compromised on that because they were so caught up with everything else. And so they had these good deeds. We saw that. They had these good works. These are the outward works of the church. But we need to understand that Jesus has piercing eyes where he sees beyond the works and looks at the heart. So yes, he commends what they did. But now he says, I have this against you. Your heart is not right. right? And, and that's important because, you know, a lot of times people look good on the outside. But we need to understand, we also saw that at the beginning of verse 2. I know your, he knows everything. And he knows their hearts. And so they had a heart problem here. And Jesus confronts them on that. So in this church, their love for Jesus had weakened. And as a result, their love for others had weakened and was shallow. And so no longer, they no longer had this throbbing excitement for the Lord. To them, it was all about what it looked like. And so the Ephesians loved truth in a sense. I say, put that in quotes. They loved truth more than they loved God or one another. And so the early love that they once had had grown cold. And it was replaced with this harsh zeal for orthodoxy. I mean, they were strong in orthodoxy. They didn't put up with anything false, anything evil. But their heart was not in it. They did it for the wrong reasons. Most likely it was for show. Look at us. We have the theology. We have the orthodoxy. The problem is they didn't have love. Right? They didn't have that love. Now, how does one lose this love? And I, I just want to give you several ways. There are probably many more ways. But just some, some ways that um, people can lose this love for Christ, which then is a loss of love for people. One is when you delight more in someone or something other than the Lord. When there's something else you delight in more than Jesus Christ, you begin to lose that love. Uh, it's not hard for us to crowd Jesus Christ out of our lives, get sidetracked or get distracted. We get our priorities out of whack. The world is filled with distractions that misguide us. So it's very easy. We're always vulnerable and we need to be careful. In fact, it's one of the tools of the enemy is to distract us so that we take our eyes off the Lord. And when we do that, we begin to lose that love. Remember what Jesus said in Mark chapter 12, verse 30. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. So when other things come in, they can distract us and our love will grow cold. This then leads into the desire uh, and the longing in my soul for close fellowship to wane. It seems to drift off. I really don't have it anymore once I start getting caught up with everything else. And again, it's very easy to, uh, to get into, especially in our world, in the, in the situation that's going on all over. It's very easy to be distracted. I know people that get distracted and caught up with the news and watch everything about the news they can. Which, you know, I don't want to condemn. But when you do that at the cost of the good news, the gospel, you begin to lose that love for, for Christ. So we have to be careful. Another way that we lose this first love is that we give in to those things which we know displease the Lord. We give in to things that we displease the Lord. We sort of um, justify it. That's really not that bad, and I'm under grace anyway. I'm going to be forgiven anyway. It's very easy to compromise. John 15, 10, Jesus said, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. 
So if we keep his commandments, we abide in his love. But if we don't keep, if we do compromise in sin, that means we're not abiding in his love. And if we're not abiding in his love, it will grow cold. It will grow cold. So giving in to those things which displease the Lord, even the little things. You know, we're all, you know, headstrong on the big things. Oh, you know, like murder and all of that. That adultery, that's, those are the big things. We don't want to do that. But just a lot of little things that come across our path that distract us, that displease the Lord. Those are just as devastating to the heart. And we need to be careful with that. Thing. So when he's talking about if anyone loves mother, father, sister, brother more than you, those things as well. It can be. It can be. It, he's not saying we shouldn't love them. But there are times that, and I've seen it where parents with their children, I love their, their children, are more concerned about their children than they are about the, uh, worshiping the Lord and, and uh, loving the Lord. And so it can be. And again, that's where we have to be careful. Yeah. Yeah. In other ways, when we willingly, uh, when we do not willingly and cheerfully give to the work of the Lord, we will lose our love. First John 3.17, John said, But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? So if you have the means to give and you don't, the Apostle John says, how can you say that you love God? How can you say that you are passionate for God if you don't give to support his work? And it's hard for us because we live in a culture where we're constantly bombarded to have more, have more, get more, get more. Our culture is a very um, a materialistic culture. And it's hard to give up things for the sake of others. It's, it's, that's the culture we live in. And remember, in Ephesus it was the same way. It would have been hard for them as well. But when we hoard, when we keep, when we don't give as we should give, the love for God begins to wane. You begin to get cold in your love. So that's another way. Another way when we, that, that uh, we lose the love for God is when we cease to treat every Christian as we would the Lord. Rudeness, arguing, hatefulness, selfishness, gossip, slander, and on and on and on. It will rob you of that spiritual enthusiasm that closeness with the Lord. Again, Jesus said in John chapter 13, in verse 34, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So how do you love a person if you slander that person, if you gossip about that person, if you're rude? You know, if you're selfish and you ignore those people, how, how does that love? That isn't love. And yet the command of Jesus Christ is that we love one another. So the love grows cold when we cease to treat brothers and sisters as we would the Lord. And another way that we, uh, I believe that we can lose that the zeal, that love, is when we inwardly strive for recognition, popularity, okay, rather than the approval of Jesus Christ. Ask yourself this question. Who is more important? Whose opinion and favor do I value the most? The crowd or Jesus Christ? And be careful how you answer because it's very easy to answer in the positive. Say, oh, I'm for Christ. Be very careful. I would encourage you to pray and ask God, Lord, help me to be honest. Whose approval do I want? Be honest about it. 
And if it is the approval of others more than it is the approval of Christ, then confess and repent. Because if you maintain that where you're always out to make sure people notice you and see you and talk about you and you're puffed up, there is no love of Christ in you. It begins to wane. And it's hard. I know it's hard. John said in 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So if we love the acclaim of the world, the love of the Father is not in us. And, you know, and I've heard people say, Man, that's hard because if I live for Christ and I'm, and, and, and I'm at work, they're going to ridicule me. I'm not going to fit in. And I say, that's okay. You should praise God that you don't fit in. You don't want to fit in this world. That's the whole point. Jesus said in John 15, If you are of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world... Because of this, the world hates you. So, if you are living for Christ and your love is passionate for Christ and people don't like you and they push you away, praise God. It's because you love Him. In fact, if you say that you know you fit in and people are accepting of you, that's probably a sign that maybe you need to start worrying and thinking, do I really love the Lord? Do I really love the Lord? Another way that our love grows cold is we become complacent and apathetic to the sinful conditions around me. You know, people uh, may be struggling in sin and we just don't care. Right. When a person gets used to his sin, when a person gets used to sin around him and he doesn't care anymore about the consequences, the heart gets harder. And believe me, I've seen this more times than I want to remember. It's it's. it's it's just hard. Jesus warns in Matthew 24, verse 12, he says, Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. And you don't have to look very hard in our culture, in our country today, to see lawlessness increase. It's very easy, very easy to become complacent and apathetic. I can't do anything about it, so, oh well. Be careful. And then one last one that I want to mention is that we... Um, lose that first love when we are unwilling to forgive another who has offended us or hurt us. Unforgiveness, when we refuse to forgive others, is devastating to our relationship with the Lord. <clears throat> Bitterness and blessing, they don't get along in the heart. They're enemies, right? Only one will reside, and some folks are not growing because they are unwilling to forgive those who offended them or those who said certain things. In fact, what happens is, uh, what the writer of Hebrews says is that this root will grow up into bitterness, the root of bitterness. Be careful, don't let that happen, we're warned. And when that happens, I can guarantee you that the love for God will grow cold. John again says in 1 John 4.20, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Think about that. Those are strong words. He is a liar. For, one who, for the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So if you love, you will forgive. If you don't forgive, you don't love. And if you don't love the other person, how can you say you love God? Scripture calls us liars. So if you have trouble forgiving... Pray to God that He gives you the strength to love enough to forgive. The thing that's always helped me when it comes to forgiveness is I look at my own life and I think, how many times God has forgiven me? 
And I think, who am I? <laughs> who am I to think I can't forgive another person for their wrongdoing? If God could forgive me the countless, and I mean countless times that I have sinned and continue to sin daily, moment by moment, and He forgives me and accepts me, who am I to not forgive another person? And those are just several ways that our love can grow cold. You probably have other ways as well. But just something to think about because the love growing cold in our lives for Christ and for others is a real danger. In fact, it's what the enemy attacks. So be aware. Be aware. Jesus warned the Ephesian church, and that warning is for us as well. A loss of love can be disastrous, not only for your life, but it can also be disastrous for the church. So we have to be aware. Now, after diagnosing the problem, Jesus gives a prescription. Not all was lost. Okay? In verse 5, he says, Rekindle your love for Jesus. This is interesting. Note, note what Jesus does not recommend to fix the problem. He doesn't recommend that they become theologically lax. Right? He doesn't say, you know, give way a little bit. Be intol- don't, don't be so intolerant of evil. Accept these people. Notice, he doesn't say that. He commends them for staying strong in their orthodoxy. He commends them for removing the evil people. And he's not asking them to deter from that. So again, be careful. I talked about this even last week, how sometimes people in churches say, you know, because of love, we need to accept them. No, if they are in sin, we don't accept them. We love them and encourage them and help them to turn and gain victory over their sin, but we don't accept the sin. And Jesus, notice, doesn't say, hey, relax a little bit. Get a little bit too uptight. You know, a little sin here, a little sin there is no big deal. That's not what he says. It's important. You do not try to cure one problem in a way that will create another. If you're tolerant of sin, just quote, out of love, you just allow more sin in. And it gets worse. So Jesus' description of holding these seven stars in his right hand conveys the provision of heavenly help that's available. He's in their midst. He holds them and he says, I've got the help for you. And this is it. And it's three words. The first is remember. Remember. This is a present tense imperative. That means it's ongoing. Don't forget. Always remember. It's required conduct if they're going to make this right. Recall their past. How they at one time had that love. They needed to remember these things. They needed to remember when they first came and that passion, that love that they had for Christ, the excitement. And they did. If you read in the book of Acts, and when Paul was uh, with the church at Ephesus, there was a strong passion for them. So remember what it was like when you first came to Christ. Remember the days when you moved deep in your heart for Christ. And how it moved you deeper and deeper. Remember those days. And isn't it interesting here in verse 5 that their love is pictured as a height from which they descended? No, he says, from where you have fallen. So their love was strong at one point, and they have fallen from that. So to remember then is to reflect and meditate on that peak of that time when they had that incredible love for Christ. Remember how excited we were. For me, there are many times I look back, and when when I find myself drifting, I think, Lord, I need to get back to that. How exciting it was to have that kind of love. The boldness you would have from that. 
So recall the former fervor. Let the memory of its joy grip your hearts and uh, allow you to find that satisfaction to love him again. And as you think about it, deal with the cause that has caused you to drift away from it, whatever that may be. Deal with it. Think about it. Most of the time, of course, it's because of idolatry. We found something else we enjoy. So the first thing is remember. Remember that time when you had that incredible deep love for the Lord, that deep intimacy. Second word, he says, when you remember, repent. Repent. As they reflect on their past and they realize from where they have fallen, they will experience conviction, which then leads them to repentance. And that the Greek word metanoia is a basic term for a change of heart. It's like turning around, doing a 180. You're going down this way, and repentance means you're going the direct opposite the other way. It's a 180. Metanoia, to, re- to change, it's a compound word in the Greek, meaning to change the term. Uh, we want to embrace that new lifestyle. Simply put, think of it this way. Stop and then start. Stop, turn, and start. That's repentance. And that's what he calls them to do. Remember where you were, then stop where you are, turn, and get back to where you were. That makes sense. Okay? We need to have a different attitude towards Jesus Christ. Stop the cold-hearted disregard for Christ and for others. Start cultivating the passion and the love for Jesus Christ. Turn away from that which has caused you that drift, whatever it may be, whatever it is. Turn from that. If it's a TV, get rid of the television. If it's a computer, get rid of the computer. Whatever it is that causes you to drift, get rid of it. Remove it. Because if you don't, you will not regain that love. And there's a danger if you don't regain that love. Jesus said, I will remove that lampstand. So remember where you once were. Repent. Stop, turn, and start up again. And then third, return. They need to go back to the way it was. Regain the fervor for Christ. Regain that love for Jesus Christ. Cry out to him to regain that love. So they are to continue to do the works. He's just saying, I want you to do it out of a true love for me, rather than just doing it for the sake of doing it. So what they were doing was good, but the heart was wrong. So now he asks them to repent, return, and do keep doing what you're doing, but doing it for a different reason. Doing it for the love of Christ. And so their battle against the heretics could be seen and looked at as good works but it wasn't accomplished because of genuine love, right? And so it was insufficient. It was not good enough, if you will. And that's why Jesus Christ condemns them. Think of it this way. The word orthopraxy means to put orthodoxy into practice, right? So you have orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Make sense? Remember, orthopraxy is to put doctrine into practice, right? We call doctrine orthodoxy. Orthodoxy, orthopraxy. Right? Some of you are looking at me like, I just want to make sure you understand that. Okay. Well, orthodoxy without orthopraxy is a false religion. Just think of it that way. Orthodoxy without orthopraxy is a false religion. In other words, you could have great theology but not have the practice. That's a false religion. There you go. 
That's probably a better biblical way of saying it. Do not be a hearer only, but a doer. And, well, a doer for the right reason. We yeah. need to take it a step further. Because they were doers. But their heart was not in the right place. Right? Orthodoxy, orthopraxy, you're going to do what the doctrine does for the right reason. For the love of Jesus Christ. Very critical. I think, I, I think that's very important for us today because in a lot of churches... We emphasize doing things, doing things, doing things, do this, do that, reach out. And all of that is good, but we don't emphasize enough why we do those things. We don't do it simply because we're commanded, although we do. We do it because we are commanded, but because we love Jesus Christ. Okay, we do it because we love Jesus Christ. If the love of Christ is not there, then Christ is not impressed. It's not like Christ says, oh, you did it, wonderful, yeah, but your heart is far away. The Pharisees were good at doing stuff, but what did he say? They worship me with their lips, their outward actions, but their heart is far from me. And God forbid that that should be of us. So yes, we want to do things, we want to obey. But my, my question to people when they say, I want to obey, I ask why. Why do you want to obey? You want to obey because it's simply commanded and I want to get something out of Jesus? If I do this, God will do this. If I obey, God will bless me. And there's truth to that. I don't want to take away from that. But if that's why you're doing it, you're doing it for the wrong reason. It'd be like this. I buy a dozen roses for my wife. I come home, open the door, give her the roses. She says, oh, how beautiful. I say, don't mention it. I have to do it. I'm your husband. Ladies, what would you do? I said that one time, one lady said, I'd slap you so hard, you wouldn't even know who it, what hit you. <laughs> Why? Because I did what I was supposed to do, but there was no love. Change it around. Let's say I did that. And my wife comes to the door, and I give her the roses, and she says, oh, they're beautiful. I say, sweetheart, I can't tell you how much I love you. Get ready. We're going out. We're going to have some fun together. Totally different. Because there's love. We could see that with our spouses, but what makes us think we could get away with it with God? I'm going to obey God, but my love is shallow. And, you know, it's like, Jesus, I did this for you. And Jesus says, do you really love me? Do you truly, genuinely love me? Did you do that because you love me? Or did you do it because you're trying to get something out of me or just trying to look good? That was a problem with the Ephesians here. And sadly to say, many Christians face that. So search your heart. Search your heart. Remember that love that you had. And if it's waning and it's lost, repent and return. And allow a love for Christ to stir and move your heart to do those good works. Very important. So it's critical that these Ephesian Christians, and for us as well, that they strive by God's grace to cultivate and sustain a, a, passion of, a passionate affection for Jesus Christ. That it would be their love that would motivate and stir them. Because Jesus gives a warning that is still true today. If they do not repent, what will he do? Remove their lampstand. That's serious. He, Jesus doesn't joke around with this. What do you do with a lampstand that doesn't shine? If it doesn't work, what do you do? You throw it out. You don't want to shine for me? I have to get rid of it. 
It's serious stuff. This is how serious Jesus is about love in the body of Christ, beginning with the love for Jesus Christ, overflowing to others. He is very serious. And by the way, the way you love others will reflect how you love Jesus Christ. Right? So keep that in mind as well. A great example of this is, is Israel. Although they're not the church, and I wouldn't make them, you know, I, I'm, not type that, I'm not the person that would equate the, uh, the church in Israel. But Israel is an example because they grew cold of their love for God. And what did God do? He took them out of the land. Right? He took them out of the land. He will do that. If our love for him is not what it needs to be. Think about it. What happens when somebody lacks this love for Christ? It usually overflows into a lack of prayer, which results in weakness anyway. And it results in a lack of growth. So he gives the warning there. And the, 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 uh, um, the way to get over this in verse 5. Then he concludes in verse 7. And in verse 7, he makes it very clear that we need to take this message seriously. I think too often we play with Christianity. Too often we're flippant about this. But the words that he uses here, especially in the Greek text, are emphatic. He says, man, you really need to take this seriously. Don't play with this. This is a serious issue. He calls them to listen carefully to what he just said. And so the statement that he says here can be translated, let the one who is willing to hear listen and listen carefully. So the question is, are you willing to hear what Jesus has to say? Then listen and listen carefully. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. And notice when it says that the Spirit says to who? Who does he say it to? What church? What, what word does he use there? It's not the, the church, but churches. churches, plural. The reason why I say that is because this command is not just for the Ephesian church, it's for all churches. That means you and I are involved in this. If you're willing to hear, then listen carefully. That was not only 2,000 years ago to the church at Ephesus, but to all the churches throughout history to the present day. So, Lakeside, listen to what Jesus has to say and listen carefully. That's what he's saying. And so he made these truths available for them and for us. And throughout Scripture, it's very common to take the word to hear and equate it with to obey. Many times Jesus does that, especially in the Gospels. When he talks about hearing, the, they understood it as to hear and obey. Okay, And I believe that he, he's doing it here. Uh, Jesus used that formula many times with the gospel uh, uh, in the parables. At the end of parables, he would talk about it. And so, listen carefully to what the Holy Spirit is saying. He speaks through these letters, through the entire Word of God, and we are exhorted to listen carefully. So get into His Word so that you may hear and listen carefully. It's for all of us. And those who do accept the message are promised the inheritance of blessings. Know what he says. To him who overcomes. That word overcome in the Greek is uh, nikao. It's where Nike get the word. It means to conquer. The, the word literally in the Greek means conquer. That's why Nike took, took the word nikao and they came up with their name, their brand name. It's not the name of a person. It's a Greek word for conquerors, overcomers. And so that's what he does here. To him who overcomes, to him who is victorious, to him who um, uh, 
uh, overcomes and conquers, uh, conquers, it's repeated and it includes every promise in every letter because it's so critical. The promised inheritance is the main point towards all of us. We will have this incredible inheritance when we obey, when we follow, when we love Him the way we should. So it is on the basis of believers heeding this exhortation that they will be overcomers, they will be conquerors. To him who overcomes, to him who conquers, he says. Now, an overcomer is not someone who has some special power in the Christian faith. It's not like just a pastor or some very special person, a missionary. Not at all. This is for all believers. In fact, in 1 John 5, verses 4 and 5, you could read it later, he defined an overcomer as a believer, a genuine believer. One who is genuinely trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. So every true, genuine Christian is an overcomer. So this is for all of us. This promise is for us to see and understand and get excited about. Our lives have to reflect and declare the victory of Jesus Christ over sin and death. And we have to have this confidence in the ultimate victory that one day we will be with Him. I think it's one thing to know it, but the thing that I get uh, from a lot of people is that I know it, but I don't feel it. You ever, you ever hear people say that? I hear it all the time. I know it, but I'm still afraid. I'm still afraid. We need to live in our lives in confidence that it is the reality that when we close our eyes for the last time, we will be in His presence forever. And if there is that lack there, then that's what we need to pray for. That's what we need to ask God for. Lord, help my unbelief. Make it part of my heart. And so faithfulness, a determination that, um, that, we will, that, that we live in such a way that we will reflect our confidence in Him, that no matter what, we belong to Him. And should my life be called upon, then I will give it for the sake of His name. So, in short, overcoming in the book of Revelation is basically um, what Paul talks about in his letters, to believe. Now, be careful when people talk about, yes, I believe in Jesus. I come across this all the time. Oh, I believe in God and I believe in Jesus. There's a problem with the, the way the world defines belief, right? The word pestio in the Greek does mean believe, but not believe the way we define it. It means to trust in completely. So when we say, when in Scripture Paul talks about believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, he's not talking about just to believe that He exists. Okay? It's way beyond that. Because you can believe that He exists. Unbelievers believe that He exists. It's not the point. My follow-up question to people who say they believe is, what do you believe? You say you believe, tell me what you believe. And some of the answers are mind-boggling. Like, where did you come up with that? The belief that is called upon is a trust, a total dependence, a complete trust and confidence in Jesus Christ, who He is and what He has done, and all of His promises. It's not in anything else. It's not simply believing that He exists. So it's an act of trust in God that overflows in faithfulness, especially through the most difficult situations. And note the promise here. This is incredible promise. I will grant that person who overcomes to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Isn't it interesting that we come to the book of Revelation and we see the tree of life? 
When was the first time we saw it? In Genesis at the beginning. Right? Interesting. So, we have this promise of the one who overcomes to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That's a significant statement that we're going to work through this. Very important. So this reward for the faithful is striking. They will participate. Think about it. We are going to participate in the blessing intended at creation, but never realized by Adam and Eve. What they lost, we are going to participate in. We're going to eat of the tree of life. And this is eternal life, which was lost when Adam and Eve actually took of the fruit. Right? To eat of the tree, tree of life. In fact, this was used in several Jewish texts, so it's very familiar to them. And it refers to the very presence of God himself. If you were to talk to these Jews back then, you talk about the tree of life. To them, they understand it as being in the very presence of God himself. Okay? That's how they understood it in the first century. So it's a picture of forgiveness in that uh, experience of God's intimate presence. In fact, you see that later on in the book of Revelation. But what I find interesting when I talk to people about heaven is what people believe about heaven. It's amazing. For them, it's mainly a family reunion. Okay? And no doubt we're going to see families that have gone on before. But please understand Please, please understand that is not what heaven is about. Every vision in scripture that we get of heaven, isn't it interesting? You never hear John or Paul or anybody else say, and I saw a cousin so-and-so and my aunt and uncle over here. You don't see any of that. But what do they see? This amazing glory of Almighty God such that they pass out. They're overwhelmed. Heaven is not, I want to see my aunt, oh boy. You'll see them, but it's not going to be that way. Because you are going to be so stunned and so overwhelmed at what you see that you'll need glorified eyes to see it. And that's what you get. See, that's heaven. It is Jesus Christ. What makes heaven? Heaven is Jesus. You take Jesus out of the picture and put my uncle there? That's not heaven. <laughs> it's Brooklyn. Yeah, it's Brooklyn. <laughs> it's Brooklyn. That's not heaven. But too often, that's what we hear. I visited one family one time. They just lost their mom. They were a motorcycle family. And they said, oh, we're doing, we know where she is. Right now, she's right on a motorcycle there in heaven. Her hair is blowing in the wind. I'm thinking, that's heaven? Riding a motorcycle? Another, talk about fishing, catching the big one. I said, that's heaven? Really? Wow. No, heaven. Heaven is the majesty and the glory of Christ to which we will be stunned. Yeah. Uh, I, I was listening to the radio station that passed Come on. And it was something about heaven. He was doing the discussion about heaven. People was calling in. But a lady called in and literally said she didn't want to go to heaven if her pets wasn't there. And I'm like, what? But he didn't know how to respond to her. He's like, well, I think it's going to be some animals, some creatures there. I'm like, is that the reason why you want to go to heaven, your pet? Yeah. Like, that doesn't make common sense. It's like, lady, are you reading the Bible? Yeah. No. It's like, you know. But she, she didn't want to go if her yeah. pet wasn't there. I'm like, you got to be kidding. Well, you think about it. Because, like hell. <laughs> well, the, the sad thing is, is that we're not really taught about it. We want people to feel good. And so, I mean, I work as a chaplain with other chaplains. And 
I hear this from, from the chapters. Like, oh, man, you'll be with family, do this and that. And when people ask me, I don't, give them, I, I, I don't want to give them that kind of an answer because I'm not going to lie. And I say, you will be in the presence of Jesus Christ. And I have to be careful how I say it because I don't want, I can't. I'm not allowed to proselytize and I'm not allowed to say certain things. But I have to be creative. But I can say, you will be in the presence of Christ. And if, I can, if that's all I could say, then I'm happy with that. But I'm not going to give in and say, well, yeah, you'll be up there and you'll be having a party and have another meal with your mom and your dad and give them a big old hug. And... They always say they're looking down on you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, they are not. No, they are not. If they could, they'd be horrified. Yeah, exactly. Praise God that they don't. I don't want the people in heaven to look at me. And not only that, but we have to understand, those who are in heaven are not thinking about us. I'm sorry they're not. You know, They're consumed with the one who's on the throne. Think about this. I mentioned this last Sunday evening. We are going to be so overwhelmed with the glory of God. And how great is the glory of God? It's infinitely great. If it's infinitely great, how long is it going to take for an infinite God to reveal His glory to you and me? All eternity. So for all eternity, we're not going to be worried about mom and dad. We're going to be looking and being, our minds will be blown away by what we see of God constantly revealing new things about Him. 10,000 years later, God says, hold on, we just started. And we're going to talk about animals? That's the whole point of it. He said, anyone love mother, father, sister more than your children want to be ain't worthy of me. Mm -hmm. So, And that's why it's important that we do gain that love for Christ because then we long for heaven. Jonathan Edwards used to say that he, uh, uh, he would not allow one day to go by that he does not think on and meditate on heaven and the Lord Jesus Christ on his throne. And that's what we should do. It's so critical. But I want to show you something. I don't know if I can get it done, but we're going to try. I want to show you something that's very important here. It's, it's shown in the Greek, and you don't see it quite in English, but I want to explain it to you. The Greek word for cross, whenever you see the word cross, the Greek word for cross is staros. I'll just write it real quick. In the Greek, that's the cross. Okay? The Greek word for tree, whenever they talk about a tree, is a zoolon. Okay? So this is cross, and this is tree. Forgive me, I don't write well. My wife tells me all the time, you need to go back to school. <laughs> oh well. Now, keep that in mind because it's important what we see here. In Acts chapter 5, you could just jot this down, but I'll read it. In Acts chapter 5, verse 30, we read, The God our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. That word for cross is zulon. It's actually tree. They just translate a cross because at times they translate it interchangeably. Okay? This is also true in Acts chapter 39. And it's also true in um, Acts chapter 13, verse 29. Translated cross, but it's actually tree. Then in Galatians 3.13 we read, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That's Zulon. Tree. So the word for tree here is Zulon. It's the same word that's translated cross in those other passages. Keep that in mind. Because there are several allusions to the cross of Christ as the tree. Right? And we see that in the New Testament. We see that also in the Old Testament. 
Now, several ancient writings, archaeologists have discovered, even on uh, inscriptions on coins, that the foundation of the Temple of Diana, remember Ephesus was known for that massive temple, the foundation of the Temple of Diana was a tree shrine. Okay, so a tree was involved there at the foundation of this temple. It was very important for their worship. And now remember also that the temple was famous because of its refuge or asylum for fleeing criminals. You commit murder, run to the, uh, to the temple, and nobody can touch you there. Okay, filled with prostitutes and wicked people. What makes this significant, and keep this in mind, is that the word used to describe the experience of the criminal running to the temple and finding safety and protection, the word that they used was soteria. That is the Greek word for salvation, used everywhere in Scripture. Every time you see the word salvation, it's soteria. So these pagans would take this soteria, this word for salvation, and attach it to the temple of Diana with the tree. Criminals would run, and they would find what at the temple? According to them, salvation. salvation. Now remember, they're constantly hearing this because it's massive in their day, right? And so the contrast is significant because for the Ephesian believers, the true tree of life, the cross, was the place of refuge for the repentant sinner. In the temple, repentance meant, uh, meant nothing. Okay, it's for criminals. And so Diana's so-called tree of refuge gave the criminal immunity a license to continue his life of rebellion and crime. That's their tree of life. And that's the salvation that they found. Right? Christ's tree of refuge, on the other hand, grants the repentant sinner eternal forgiveness and the power of the Spirit to pursue holiness. See, this would have stunned the Ephesian believers at that day. For us, it, it's hard because we don't really see that. But back then, when you lived in that community and you, everywhere you went, you heard of Diana, you heard of the temple, you heard of what was going on. Everywhere you went, you're bombarded with it. The news, everything would be talking about that. So you're hearing about the tree of life, talking about the temple. And if you have done what is evil, run to the temple and you're okay. <clears throat> Repentance not needed. Because a lot of those criminals continued to be criminals. And this is what you're hearing constantly. And all of a sudden you get this letter. It's directed from Jesus. And when you overcome, this is what you get. You get to eat out of the real tree of life. The true tree of life. This is huge. It would stun these Ephesian believers. It hit him right between the eyes and say, wow. Stunning and startling. And so don't miss this. The so-called salvation of this fleeing criminal actually corrupted the city because they gave freedom to wickedness. Something similar to what's going on in our country today. Right? And so when Jesus, or when the Ephesians, uh, the, the Ephesian Christians, I should, should say, heard Jesus speak this promise, they would be able to appreciate it in a way we can't of this tree of life. Jesus is the true tree of life, not the temple, not Artemis or Diana. Jesus is the true tree of life. 
And we catch a glimpse of this because you see, those who flee to the tree of life in Diana, they were still corrupt and wicked and they corrupted the city. But when you go to Revelation chapter 22, verse, or chapter 21, verse 27, here's what Jesus said. Nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. See, the true tree of life brings purity and holiness, what life truly was meant to be. Not what the temple of Diana brought about. And all of this was because of the cross of Christ. That is the only tree that gives true life. And so for them, this would be a shocker. Like, wow. No doubt a huge relief. Because all they hear is about Diana. Diana, the temple, the temple. Diana, the mighty God. The true tree of life in Diana. Now they hear where the true tree of life is. It's in Jesus Christ himself. And that's the promise for the overcomer. And so, as we look at it, Bringing this to a conclusion, you see that this church was characterized by orthodoxy without love. It's critical. They were serving Christ, maintaining orthodoxy as a tradition, rather than out of this fervor for Him. And so they had this corrective. And what was that? Remember, repent, and return. Ignatius, one of the early church fathers, tells us that the Ephesian church responded positively at first to this exhortation. However, a few years later, the lamp went out at Ephesus. They started, but then they stopped. And the lamp was plucked out. Today, the city, nor the church exists. The area is extremely desolate, rocky, empty. Nothing is there. It's one of the major ruins of the area. And I believe that they were, they were removed because they lost that first love and they didn't turn back. They started to and then they gave up on it. And Jesus is true to his word. You don't return, I'll pluck the lampstand out. So what the Ephesian church did was good in hating evil. Keep that in mind. That is critical. That's important, especially in the world as it progresses. But learn what was wrong. They, love, they, they failed to love Jesus Christ. They lost that love for Christ and for others. And that is serious to Christ because he will pluck the church out. So as the Ephesian church did, we must hate evil. That which is evil, that which is corrupt, that which is not true. But we have to do this out of a deep, passionate intimacy for our Savior and for others. So the question, when we come to this, we have to ask ourselves, how is my love for Jesus Christ? And how is my love for others? Is it a reflection of who Christ is? Do I genuinely love him? And if not, now's the time to take action. Now's the time to remember back when you did have that love. To repent. See what it is that caused you to lose that love. Turn from that and return to Jesus Christ. Think about it. No repentance, non-repentance, leads to the removal of their lampstand and hence separation from Christ. That's serious. That's serious. Overcoming their sin will result in the presence of Christ now and to a greater degree later. Can't get anything better than the very presence of God.
That's the promise. And that is the first message to the church at Ephesus. Now, I did a lot of talking. Any questions or comments on it? I know there's a lot there. Yes, John. Um, I didn't, but there are many. There are, the, the majority of the time that you read of the cross in the New Testament, it is this word. Oh, majority. It is. Yeah, those other instances, they, they, they change it to cross because that's what the intent is, but literally it is tree. And because of that, if, see, you don't see it much in the English text, but if you were in the first century and you heard about the tree of life dealing with the temple, and then all of a sudden Jesus says, you're going to eat of the true tree of life, it would stun them. It would be like, wow. So that, that's why I say it, would have, it, it probably would stun them more than it would stun us because we really don't deal with that right now. Sanctuary City. <laughs> hey, yes. Is, um, since this is in the book of Revelation, uh, it's almost like a last warning to the churches. It, it is. It is the last because warning. When Jesus said, uh, when he talks in uh, parables, he talks about uh, salt losing its, its season. Salt losing its flavor. Yep. And what good is salt that has? Yeah, you, you could be like that. In mm-hmm. a sense, that's the same thing. Uh, and also, you said, uh, how would the world know that you're truly my disciple if you don't show love one toward them? Right. But here he's distinctly homing in on love. This is it. This is the last one that I'm giving you, basically, is that if you don't. Right. That's the end. Yeah. And, and the, uh, the church at Ephesus, its yeah. history is a reflection. Okay. Yeah. You know, I tell people. Look at pictures or go back and check it out yourself. That's what happens when we don't repent. Yeah. It's a good warning. Serious warning. Okay, well, let's go ahead and close in prayer and trust uh, that God will use his word after I stop this.